Today is the 17th of March of 2017 and uh, this is the third in a series of talks entitled Love and Faith and we're going to be mostly reading today from a book called White Sail, Crossing the Waves of Ocean Mind to the Serene Continent of the Triple Gems. This is by a Tibetan teacher called um, Finley Norbu and um, he's a, um, a Nyingma lineage teacher. And just for those of you who weren't here last time, just to recap a little bit um, on what we've been talking about, and I'll just reread a short passage that we were um, commenting on um, last time. This is from a chapter of the book of the book called "Love and Faith." He says, "Love and faith have the same essence of deep caring." The only difference is that love is aimed towards sentient beings, including those who are less fortunate than we are, and faith is aimed towards sublime beings, including, including all Buddhas and the enlightened guides. So that would include the ancestors, all the ancestors in our tradition. The nature of love is to give positive energy to others in order to benefit them and to release them from suffering. The nature of faith is to trust in sublime beings in order to receive the blessings of wisdom energy that, the, that benefit oneself and others. True faith creates the vast love of compassion that benefits countless beings. And uh, so we were looking into some of the things that are mentioned in this passage, which are very rich. And one of those that we were talking about last time was... Uh, receiving blessings and what this would mean in, from a Zen point of view. And we were looking at um, uh, Yasutani Roshi's teaching, which actually comes from Tendai Buddhism, um, that, that he terms the mutual attraction between Buddhas and sentient beings. Uh, that there is this, this, this natural um, magnetic attraction between Buddhas who seek to, to save beings and, and us, sentient beings. And we looked at these four different modes that this, this, this mutual um, sort of need and response um, can be understood in. And um, just briefly to Recall these as they as I think they help us will help us with, with the rest of the chapter as we read through it. They were potential motive and invisible response, potential motive and visible response, visible motive and potential response, and visible motive and visible response. And um, when he talks about potential motive, he's talking about how. Um, we can have an unconscious um, yearning for the truth, something that's not yet manifested, that hasn't taken form yet, that's really like a seed in us. And if we understand this in the broadest possible way, um, it includes even, even our most misguided efforts um, to relieve our suffering. And we, we often do these in ways that aren't go take us actually in the opposite direction to relief of suffering. Um, so it's in this, this desire to be, be free 
is in obvious gross um, things like seeking wealth and fame and power. When we look really down deeply at these things, we find that, that the, the motive is because we think that we'll find some solace and some safety in these things. And it can also be seen in things that may not be quite so obvious, like uh, seeking, that, but that also are limited, at least misguided sometimes. So um, things we seek like um, approval or security, or goodness, knowledge, um, even, even um, harmony in our relationships. So, so all of these have in, in them this, this um, really seeking, seeking after some kind of peace, um, happiness, true, true happiness. So this is still, it's still not conscious, it still hasn't come up into our minds in a conscious way, but those efforts are there. And then the invisible response that we talked about was, we paired up with this, this um, say, invisible motive. Um, we can see uh, people who are in um, working in solitude, doing spiritual practice in solitude, um, masters, yogis, um, uh, monastics, uh, not just in Buddhism either. The people who are working in solitude, nobody um, knows about them, sees them necessarily, but they are deeply connected to the suffering of others. They are doing their spiritual practice out of, motivated by a desire to uh, relieve suffering. So in a sense, even though they're not um, specifically helping us, they're doing their practice in, out of a sense of connection, out of an awareness of how much suffering that there is in the world. And in a certain way, they're, they're, they're broadcasting their love through the, their, their practice. It may seem solitary, but in fact, because we're all connected, it isn't. Uh, and it affects us, we sentient beings. And then Yasutani Roshi talked about potential motive and visible response. And visible response, he classed, classed things like us sitting here in the Zendo, um, hearing a Dharma talk. Um, it's inconspicuous, it's not very terribly visible, but at the same time, um, it's a response to a need for, for people to find some peace, find some truth in their lives. And um, even if there's only a few people doing this, a um, little sitting group, uh, people meeting together, listening to a recorded talk, or, or um, sitting together once a week, coming together to, to practice, um, that's already, that's already um, a response and it can affect people even if they're not participating. And again, this is paired up here with potential motive, still, still somebody who's not consciously seeking the Dharma. Then he talks about visible motive. So this is where, where the motive is no longer unconscious but 
um, um, starting to become conscious. So we might start looking um, for some, some teaching, but we may experience difficulties with that. Maybe we, we don't find a teacher or a group near us, or we come up against obstacles, things like um, health or, or, a, or getting the time to practice, um, all the responsibilities we have. But maybe we contact, we get in touch with the teaching in some small way. Maybe we find, find stuff on the internet that inspires us, or, or we act, accidentally come across a book. Um, this was the old-fashioned old way, we'd be finding a book to get us started. I remember hearing from somebody who, was, um, who, who came across the three pillars of Zen when, um, when they were working in the library and they were um, checking shelves and the book was out of its place. And so just by chance, they happened to pull it out to re reshelve it. And this was the start of their, of their interest. So even though it was, it was some, something seemed quite ch or by chance, there was, there was, um, there's a connection was made. And then the last one he talks about is the visible motive and the visible response. And, um, and this is when um, our aspiration becomes um, clear and um, we find a genuine teacher. We find a community where we feel at home um, and we find we can participate in the, in, um, the practice. read a little bit more from, from this um, Yasutani Roshi and this is from a, from a sort of um, copied a Xerox booklet called Eight Beliefs in Buddhism um, and he's going on to talk more about these, these two um, this, um, this mutual attraction between Buddhists and sentient beings This is a part that we didn't get to last time. So he's continuing to talk about this mutual attraction. Both directly and indirectly, there is mutual attraction between Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and ourselves, just as there is between ourselves and Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Although I am very immature in my practice, I am nonetheless speaking to you about Buddhism. This is neither a coincidence nor a superficial arrangement, but is an actual form of the mutual attraction between you and myself. 
says here, I'm very immature in my practice. I can really relate to this in terms of um, talking. You know, even to talk out of one's limited understanding, but still hopefully being able to share something that is of value to others. Um, Roshi Kapra used to say, I share with others what I do seriously for myself. And the, and the fact that we all are here in this room is proof of, of um, a karmic connection, or as, as Yasutani Roshi puts it here, a mutual attraction. He continues, since there is mutual attraction between Buddhas, Bodhisattvas and ourselves, we might conclude that even without practice we will still become Buddhas. But the fact is not so. Why is this? The answer is very simple. The mutual attraction is not just between ourselves and Buddhas, but between ourselves and all existences. We respond to devils as well as Buddhas, to bad friends as well as good ones, to egotism and immoral mo movements as well as movements for peace. And we've seen, we've seen a lot of evidence of that lately. How contagious movements are of different kinds, and it can be movements towards bigotry and racism, sexism. He says, a diligent man impresses us, but at the same time, a man who enjoys life without having to work hard arouses our jealousy. These different responses are just like the different wavelengths which are broadcast from radio and television stations. When we tune in the radio, we hear different sounds. When we tune in our receiving set to Buddha's broadcasting, we receive his teaching. When we tune in on the devil's channel, we are persuaded to do evil. Um, a philosopher, um, Jose Ortega y Gasset, who said, tell me what you pay attention to and I will tell you who you are. So what we pay attention to is, is um, absolutely vital. He goes on to say um, that if you're a person who likes alcohol, then you'll find yourself in the company of drunkards. If you're someone who um, gets a kick out of gambling, then you'll associate with other gamblers. If you like to do zazen, then you'll, you'll be attracted to others who do zazen. So, um, to be aware of the different kinds of attractions and to, to direct ourselves um, to those that are wholesome. He says the attraction exists between human beings and animals as well. Dogs take, a kind, take kindly to a person who likes dogs. The same is true with cats. In fact, since animals' minds are simpler, freer from delusion in a sense, they are naturally more sensitive and intuitive, hence the attraction is more vital. Uh, then he goes on to talk about how um, 
when an animal enters a slaughterhouse, even though he doesn't understand human language, he will sense what is going on and um, even have tears in his eyes. Buddhists stress vegetarianism because of this mutual empathy between man and beast. Confucius said, if we hear the scream of an animal being killed, we cannot stand to eat meat. And then he also tells a story about a boy. This is actually from a Taoist scripture. Um, a boy who used to go out on a boat every day to play with the seagulls. And then his father notices what he's doing and says, um, please, please, this time when you go out, catch me a seagull. And so the boy says, well, yes, if you really want me to, I will. But then the next day when he goes on the, out on the boat, no seagulls anywhere. Not a single seagull comes. And um, this is in um, the, an example of um, the mutual attraction between the birds and the men. And the mutual understanding. Somehow those birds sensed that something had changed. He wasn't coming in a neutral way anymore. He was coming in order to um, capture one of them. But the main point here is that is that um, it's crucial that we tune in to what is what is wholesome, wholesome. Um, and um, developing faith in in what um, Finley Norwood calls sublime beings, uh, our, our spiritual betters, we could say, is is helpful to our, our spiritual practice. And this happens. Really, when we look at it, this, this happens no, nowhere else but in our imagination. To uh, turn our, our mind towards these beings and open ourselves to their wisdom energy. That's what's being suggested here. But it, it, it affects us because what we imagine transforms us, especially if we do it repeatedly. William James said, for the moment what we attend to is reality. What we pay attention to creates our world, the world we experience. And this is really what I think what he's talking about in this last line of the passage we quoted at the beginning of the talk. He says, True faith creates the vast love of compassion that benefits countless beings. When we, when we make a conscious effort to, to open ourselves to receiving uh, the love and benevolence of beings who vowed to, to save and liberate us, then we'll also be able to give that love and benevolence. We just have to be um, careful when using this word love, this English word, 
because it's been so cheapened by in the way that it's used. I mean, we can say, we can say, I love chocolate, and that the love in that sentence is is a, just an expression of of personal preference, and it's not what we're talking about when we talk about love in a spiritual context. And this is what Finley Norba goes on to talk about in the next, his next paragraph. He says, if we rely on limited dualistic mind, we cannot have deep and lasting love, either for our equals or for less fortunate beings, because limited dualistic mind depends on the uncertainty of temporary circumstances. This uncertainty easily causes disinterest, hatred, or betrayal. If we do not believe in the unending continuity of mind, we will only consider the immediate, tangible circumstances of our connections to others, rejecting or accepting them as these circumstances change according to what is the most expedient for us. Um, and I think everybody is, is, can recognize this um, think of the many crimes of passion that occur where um, people are in love and then um, something happens, they're crossed, they're, somebody's in, in, um, unfaithful and suddenly it turns to hate. Love turns to hate and even murder. So-called love. And this is the mind, this is the love that comes from our limited dualistic mind, the mind that um, uh, rejects the unpleasant and, and seeks after the pleasant. He says ordinary love that arises from the karmic results of habit can seem to have the qualities of being genuine, loyal, and stable. But these qualities only mask the potential for the opposite qualities of insincerity, disloyalty, and instability to arise if circumstances change. Because ordinary love has no depth, it is automatically limited. If it becomes unpleasant, we stop feeling it. When we only react to circumstances, we really just are considering ourselves and our own reactions without respecting or caring deeply about others. When we feel isolated and want to be loved, we show love to others in order to receive love from them in return. But when we are satisfied, we forget about others. This is not enduring and continuous love. It does not cause the impartial comp compassion of bodhisattvas in us because it depends on our personal selfish desire. Where he says here about um, when we're satisfied, we forget about others. It reminded me of a of um, part of a story. Some people may have seen this film. It's called Man on a Wire, and it's about uh, Philippe Petit, uh, a, a um, tightrope walker, who in 1974 pulled off this amazing um, sort of guerrilla performance, which involved stretching a cable between the Twin Towers. And then for 45 minutes, he, he was walking up and down this cable, you know, uh, stories and stories and stories above the street. And they hadn't got permission to do it. 
it had to have a whole team of people um, to plan, and uh, it took years actually, they were planning it, but finally he and a group of friends managed to carry off these, this amazing feat. And then after he had come down um, in the film, it shows that he, he was just totally drunk on, uh, on the, the, the um, sort of exhortation from having um, completed this act. And he was so intoxicated that he, he left his friends, went off to a bar, picked up a woman and then um, made love to her all night. Uh, this kind of wild, uh, drunken exhaustion over his, over his feet. Um, but what he didn't realise that was the huge effect this had on his friends who were just as much a part of the, um, the effort as he was, and he'd abandoned them, and they were all sort of wondering where he was and when he was going to come to the, the sort of after party to uh, rejoice together with them, and he never showed up. And they felt, um, not surprisingly, they felt betrayed by this. When we're satisfied, we forget about others. Another point he makes in here is um, he talks about um, we do not believe in the unending continuity of mind. We will only consider the immediate tangible circumstances of our connections to others. When he talks about um, continuity of mind, He's really um, talking about this eternal aspect to, to us. Um, elsewhere in the same uh, booklet, uh, Yasitani Roshi talks about this. He calls it eternal mind. And um, he quotes from, from a shastra by uh, Vasubandhu, which is called the Vijnapti Matrata Siddhi. And, and in it, um, Vasubandhu likens our life to a wave. And uh, this is the same uh, image that we uh, find frequently in uh, Thich Nhat Hanh as well. Um, and it's, it's coming from, my guess is this was coming from the same, uh, same sutra you're referring to. It's worth just going a little bit into this, into this image in terms of understanding what Penny what, what, um, Norbo is talking about when he's talking about continuity of mind. The thing about a wave is that um, the water rises um, due to the energy of the wind and then the wave, one wave, produces the next snake wave. And if there wasn't any friction, um, this, these waves would go on endlessly. This is what Yasutani Rosie writes. Suppose that here and now we have sufficient energy to create one human being. 
His life energy will produce the next life, just as the energy of one wave produces the next wave. This energy will never disappear, resulting in a continuous formation of successive lives. Now, in the case of a wave, the movement of the water is vertical. The water itself does not, does not ripple or move horizontally. The only thing which moves horizontally is the energy. Knowing this fact, most people think that a wave is the movement of one specific area of the water. Similarly, they think that there is some fixed substance which may be called the I in a human being. It's a capital I. Naturally, they think that this I lives from yesterday to today to tomorrow. This concept is called Jokem, the concept of per permanent existence. Uh, in other texts, they call it, would call it etern eternalism. This is one extreme viewpoint. If I stand up here and now and move to there in the next moment, it would generally be thought that both are the same person, but that is not true. The fact is that the I who stood up at that moment and the I who walked a few steps are different. This can be illustrated by a moving news bulletin. We see the news on an outdoor news bulletin. We think that the letters are moving, but in fact, the fact is that each letter is formed separately by the rapid flashing on and off of a light. And actually, the letters are not moving. He's talking here about the old, now somewhat old-fashioned um, um, news coming out on a, on a strip of lights. Um, I don't know if it still exists, but there used to be one on the stock exchange in Wellington near Te Papa. So you have the, the, the numbers of the stocks, the stocks coming up on this, this moving thing. It looks like the letters are moving across the, this, this strip, but actually it's just bulbs coming on and off. And he's using this as an image here for something that, that looks continuous, but is actually flashing on and off. Let me tell you of another misunderstanding. Some people think that a wave is created in a specific place and disappears from there completely. In this way, they think that the moment, at the moment of death, that is the end of one swell of the wave, is the end of life and that all energy is lost at the moment of death. This is called dunking, the concept of absolute destruction. We could say nihilism. He continues, however, both we'll use the, the um, English terms here, eternalism and nihilism are misunderstandings. The correct Buddhist understanding is this, our life is created and destroyed from moment to moment, with a new self continually being formed. So this is, this is the, the, um, the, the truth that is emphasized in Zen, this moment by moment um, death and rebirth. Is, um, there's also um, a little illustration in this text which shows waves on the, on, uh, on the surface of the ocean. And um, our, six, our six consciousnesses, our ordinary senses plus our thinking, are like the part of the wave that comes up above the, the ocean. But then we also have um, a 
part of the wave that is beneath the level of the of the ocean and which doesn't die when we die um, seventh consciousness which is called the, the manas the eighth which is called the the Laja Vishnana, and then below that our pure nature or original self that, that um, sometimes called primordial consciousness. So that even though there is this, this appears to be a wave um, and it has a form and it has a life and a, le- a lifespan you could say, that at, at the same time that wave is nothing but the ocean. When we die, it is merely a death of the first six consciousnesses which we used in our life. Our fundamental consciousness, the source or foundation of our personality, has no relation to birth and death. Hence, even if the atom bomb should explode, number seven consciousness, that's the manas, and number eight, um, the alaya vishnana, would not receive even the smallest scratch. So please, do not worry. And this would have been this would have been written probably in the in the um, late fifties or early sixties, so quite close to to when the bomb had dropped on Japan. Number seven, mana shiki, mana consciousness, consciousness, is sometimes called the conveyor, and is also called the permanent self-awareness consciousness. It's also translated as the persistent eye-awareness and sometimes in our practice um, I have a very vivid memory of the first session I did um, where as, as the days went on I became more and more aware of this persistent eye-awareness and it is very, very um, uh, tenacious could say in our in our conscious mind, the ordinary mind that we associate with the five, the five senses. So, uh, say ego consciousness. That awareness comes and goes, but this manas is constantly holding ego, the sense of self, very very strongly, and it's what communicates our experience of our senses to these deeper levels of consciousness, the Vishnana. Um, so this does not disappear at our death this, this sense of, of separate self um, which is why it is so um, it is such a difficult thing to work with because it's so deep in us not the deepest but, but persistent and it conveys, conveys information received by the senses to this the storehouse consciousness. The storehouse one is sometimes called um, the unification of truth and falsehood consciousness because it conveys the stuff we receive from the outside world to the um, uh, foundation of our consciousness, this uh, primordial consciousness, the Buddha nature.
it's, he, to, to explain this, this uh, manas, the conveyor consciousness, he says it's like you've got the receptionist um, in the office who, who receives things from outside, and then the manas is like the person inside of the office who talks to the, 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 the boss, takes things to the boss and carries messages back from the boss to the reception. This is the manas. Number six, I'm sorry, number seven. And then he says the relationship between number eight consciousness and number nine consciousness is very intimate. In fact, they're almost the same. Number nine is it called the pure nature consciousness, or primordial, primordial consciousness, or sometimes pristine awareness. This is no other than our Buddha nature. Number nine is like the ocean, and each individual is a wave on the surface of the ocean. Apart from water, no wave can exist. Apart from Buddha nature, no individual can exist. Wave is another name for this water, and each individual is another name for Buddha nature. Therefore, not only number nine, but also numbers seven, eight, and six are all nothing but Buddha nature. So this is what we, we need to remind ourselves of um, when, when thinking about this, what Norbu is talking about when he talks about continuity of mind. And it's exactly what we're seeking to understand when we um, take up a koan. In some way we know, we, intellectually we know that we're all the ocean. We know that this wave is nothing but water. And yet we, we don't live out of that truth. And so working on a koan is, is to turn our minds again and again to this truth of non-separation, of non-duality. Norbu continues. If we do not believe in anything beyond what can be experienced directly with the obscured perception of dualistic mind, we will not recognize that our awareness is limited and we will only care about our immediate experiences. Our main interest will be our own temporary benefit, even though this benefit is easily lost because it depends on unreliable temporary circumstances. It's a huge step when we start to recognize that um, what we experience in our awareness is limited that there's so much reality beyond what we, we sense and know. This is a huge step. If we only react with self-interest to whatever circumstances appear, we will make choices based on trying to find temporary satisfaction. But this effort is always ultimately hopeless, since everything within samsara is uncertain because it is changing. Through short, the short-sightedness of our habit, we do not even notice that what we are missing and that it's meaningful, like somebody who eagerly chooses to eat a cow's red meat instead of continuously drinking its white milk. <laughs> it's kind of a, an unfortunate um, simile for um, you know, vegetarians and vegans. But the point is that the, the distinction that he's making here between the red meat and the white milk is that the red meat um, uses up, is used up, it's, it's impermanent. 
whereas the milk keeps flowing. The milk that, that of, of what is beyond conditions, if we can touch it. If we believe that mind is continuous, our love for others becomes continuous. If we recognize this continuity, we do not trust temporary, tangible circumstances or take them too seriously, since it is tiring to switch between changing uncertainties which are inherently impermanent and unimportant. We become less easily influenced by any circumstance. This creates the habit of stability so that our minds are less erratic, our lives are less chaotic, and our feelings for others are less changeable, which causes love to become increasingly deep and loyal. If we believe in the continuity of mind, then love inconspicuously connects us to the ones we love with continuous positive energy, so that even tangible separations between people who love each other do not reduce the tangible power of love. This love is automatically enduring since it is not easily affected by circumstances. Think of... Um, of the many accounts um, of, of relationships at the time of the sailing ships where, where um, people would be separated for, for years, physically separated, and yet the, the, the relationship would be kept going through, through letters that might, might take months to, to go to a person and come back. If we can keep from grasping at others with the selfish fear of losing them or the hope of possessing, possessing them through unawareness of our limited dualistic mind, then the energy of love increases and its quality of giving energy to others opens and expands. The positive habit of continuity is created by not depending on what occurs each moment as though it were the only moment. By believing in the continuity of mind, we acknowledge the continuity of all circumstances, including our experiences of love, which are not just for one moment or for one life. We can understand that it is useless to try to escape from momentary dissatisfaction or to pursue momentary benefit by abandoning old circumstances and chasing after new circumstances, since nothing really changes unless we are released from all circumstances to enlightenment. Um, it's actually a strong belief in in, um, in Buddhist countries that um, when we fall in love, it's often due to things that may have happened in uh, previous previous life. There's a there's a book that's been out for a few years called uh, Lust for Enlightenment. It's about mainly about um, Buddhism and sexuality, but it also has 
has a chapter on on attitudes towards um, towards marriage and love and sexual morality. And in one um, one passage, uh, John Stevens, the the um, editor or author of the book, um, talks about the, this wildly widely hid, held belief in the East that um, if when you fell in love, you would um, it would be because you had been partners in a previous life. And this is actually the case. The story we have about Buddha is that um, uh, he had been um, married to Yashodara, his wife, in uh, a variety of previous human and animal in, um, existences. This, um, this notion of of a kind of perpetual union is very strong in Japan. There's a Japanese folk song which um, contains the verse, love has nothing to do with reason. Our love knot was tied long ago in a former life. And um, Japanese women would, would often um, become nuns on the death of their husbands and lovers and would vow to remain chaste until they joined their partners again in, in another life, another world. Um, and there are many other stories along these lines. Um, a particularly notable one from the, from the early sutras was um, Mahakashapa, who um, was, was actually married, his parents forced him to marry um, Bada Kapalani um, when he was young and they they had also been husband and wife in many previous lives and went became renunciants together later on in that in that life, in the life where they met the Buddha. And it's also understood that when we have difficulties with people, we have persistent trouble with with someone, it may very well be because of um, misunderstandings, hurts that are, are older than this present life. Of course, we can understand that in a different way. We can also understand um, cultural misunderstandings uh, and hurts that go from, from generation to generation another way of understanding this. But it's taking us back to um, the law of cause and effect, really, that it's pointing to. not going to get done with this material so um, rather than launch into the next thing I think best if we if we um, stop here and recite four vows and continue next time <coughs>